What makes leaders tick? In the Arena podcast delves into the inner workings and personal dynamics of leadership. We'll shine a light on the life-shaping experiences and perspectives of leaders who have navigated adversity and moved their organizations and themselves forward. Defining moments, lessons learned, and points of inspiration provide a roadmap for these conversations of a lifetime. Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Rieger, and welcome to the program. Joining us today in the arena is Dr. Katie Anstett, the superintendent of Washington Local Schools. And let me give you some background about Katie. Katie grew up in the Point Place area of Toledo, Ohio. She received her undergraduate degree in business administration from Siena Heights University. The first part of her career was spent in the private sector, including being a sales representative for a marketing company and owner of a pet grooming, boarding, and breeding business. She received her master's degree in education from Baldwin-Wallace University. Katie taught fourth grade in Hudson, Ohio, and then continued as an elementary teacher with Perrysburg Schools. While at Perrysburg Schools, she transitioned from the classroom into administration, serving in the roles of executive director of teaching and learning and assistant superintendent. In 2017, she earned a doctorate in educational leadership from Concordia University. In August of 2019, she was named a superintendent of Washington Local Schools, a district consisting of approximately 7,000 students, eight elementary schools, two junior highs, and a comprehensive high school, Whitmer High School. One of the first orders of business that greeted her when she started the superintendency to pick up the flag and pass the bond issue and operating levy that was needed to position the district for the future, which she successfully accomplished. Uh, Katie, it's so great to be sitting across from you. It is. It's so good to see you in person. In wow. person, yes. And um, your path is just fascinating to me. I know we know each other a little mm -hmm. bit, but there's a lot that I don't know about. So I'm just looking forward to unpacking together your path and kind of your perspectives. And we have to start with Granger. Absolutely. And as we're, I'm looking underneath the desk here in my office is Granger. And Granger, let's, can you give us the backstory? Sure. So Granger is a therapy dog from the Ability Center Greater Toledo. My husband, actually, for years has been raising puppies for them. And we watch those puppies graduate and go on to do incredible things in people's lives as service dogs. And we had just seen our last one graduate uh, before last summer and go on to do great things. And it's really difficult to say goodbye. And my husband said, you know, I think I need a little break. I just need to take a breath before we get our next dog. Understandable. Little did we know that that summer the Ability Center would call and through a series of circumstances would have a therapy dog available for school therapy. And so Granger came to be with us this last summer and she's doing incredible things for everyone that she comes into contact with. So Granger's a yellow lab about two and a half years old, mm -hmm. and she makes a smile. She's named after Hermione Granger from Harry Potter. The entire litter was named after Harry Potter characters. That The Ability Center themes their litters. Okay. So there's always some kind of theme, presidents or Final Four or whatever it is. Right. So she's named from the Harry Potter litter. Oh, my goodness. And what's her impact in the schools? It's just incredible. I, you know, she sees things that we can't see. She senses when someone needs her. Often I'll feel a tug on the leash and look to my left, and it's because she spotted someone who needs her. I had this uh, lady come into my office not so long ago making a delivery, and I was on the phone, and I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on. And I felt kind of bad because Granger made his way over or made her way over to her and kind of leaned up against her, which she does when she's sensing something. And so I got off the phone. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope you like dogs. And she said, oh, I love dogs you know, tell me her story. So I told her the story. And she said, well, how did she know? And I said, well, how did she know what? She said, I am having the worst day. No. She said, my day has just, my, my son is really struggling at school. He was in virtual and now he's back and he was always such a good student and now he's really struggling. And I thought, well, I can help with that. But if Granger hadn't gone over in that moment and sensed that something was wrong, I could have never looked at her countenance and told you anything was wrong with her. She was holding it together. Right. But here was a mom who was really hurting for her son, and Granger was the one that unpacked that. And so we hooked her up, and guess what? That young man is getting straight A's, and it's amazing. He's made a comeback. He just needed—it was like a little piece that was missing for him. Right. And, you know, that's what I do. I try to connect people with 
what the help they need. That's my job. And so, but Granger was the conduit. And that's what we see with her all the time is that mm-hmm. she's the conduit. And Granger is here with us now because obviously you're, we're doing this conversation at the end of the day and Granger goes Granger home goes with home you. with me. That's the best part of my day is Granger goes home with me. Yep. So hard hard to have a bad day when you're petting a dog. So. For sure. For sure. Did you have uh, pets when you were growing up? Yes. Almost always. We almost always had a dog growing up and I, I love dogs. As a matter of fact, uh, you probably asked me this question later, but I, I actually owned a dog kennel yeah. at one point. Over spring break in Hudson, Ohio, that dog kennel would have 400 dogs. Oh, my goodness. While people, because everybody in Hudson goes on spring break. Everybody. So they would all leave. And sometimes you'd go down the rows and there'd be 30 black labs on one side, 30 yellow labs on the other side. So you got really good at knowing their personalities and what made them unique and knowing their names and what their quirks were. So I love, love, love dogs. Let's stay before we go to Hudson. Let's mm-hmm. go um, back to when you were you were growing up. Mm-hmm. What type of uh, student kid were you? What were your interests? I know people will be surprised by this, but I was very shy. I was painfully, painfully shy. Uh, I was a firstborn, so I was a perfectionist. I was so afraid of making mistakes, so afraid of standing out in a crowd. Uh, I had a third grade teacher that I think was the first one to try to pull me out of my shell a little bit. She saw me. Um, I remember it viscerally. Uh, She was just this incredible teacher. We had these amazing experiences in her classroom. Mrs. Denny, she's gone now, but. Uh, she would have she would be very old if she were a third grade teacher but uh and I think uh, that probably helped a little bit I had a sixth grade teacher who really made an impact on me and then when I got to high school I had a couple of teachers that really saw leadership potential that I didn't really notice and tapped me on the shoulder a little bit and said you know I think you ought to run for class office or I think you ought to run for officer in the band or and so I started to step into some leadership roles I had a counselor Mr. Moffat who really encouraged me Mr. Duvendeck, my biology teacher, my yearbook advisor, Mr. Haig, and my band director. Mm. He and his wife poured into us as students. We were inner city kids. I went to Woodward High School, uh, big. Woodward was very big then. And uh, the band was a place where you could really find belonging. And I think it made me feel safe at school. Um, I had a lot of friends. That's what I always tell parents when they say, you know, I'm worried about my child in a big high school. Have them join the band. Mm. There's 150 built-in friends every day when you walk into school. So, yep. So you gravitated to leadership opportunities early on. I think so. So I seven days after high school, I started college. I started at Davis College. So I graduated in 1981, uh, and the economy was in the tank. My mm-hmm. dad's business was hanging on by a thread. He was an electrician, and the economy was terrible. And he said, you just need a skill. No one can ever take a skill from you. Right. It's the same advice I give to kids today yeah. in our career tech center. Get a skill. No one can ever take that from you. And so I went to Davis College and took a key punching class. So back in the oldest days. So back in the oldest days, just... computers ran off IBM cards. Okay. And it was like, a, it was coding. It was early coding, right? So every bit of computer language had a line of code. Mm. And that's what you, so if you wanted it to add in a group of numbers, you might have 400 cards that would tell, little, these little IBM cards that would tell that. So I learned to key punch. I was really super fast. Uh, thank goodness for my typing class in high school. But it was the opposite of the typing keyboard, which is kind of funny. But I learned to key punch, and the college president, John Lambert, asked if I would finish their yearbook. He knew that I had worked on the yearbook in high school, and they had had somebody leave, and it was unfinished. And I said, sure. He said, we'll pay your next quarter's tuition if you do that. Well, that was it. I had the bug. I had the learning bug. And so I kept talking him into the next quarter and the next quarter and the next quarter until I graduated with an associate's degree. So I had got my associate's degree in business from Davis College. I thank God for them. They were little. The classes were little. You knew every one of your teachers. Your teachers knew you. It was much smaller than high school. And it was a place that I could find success pretty easily. And I did. And some of those uh, teachers and mentors and administrators there are just people that I, I mean, I really stand on their shoulders every day because they just really helped me through a really tough time. Wow. So. And that president was used to you coming in after every quarter saying, hey, I'm done with this. I'm one. done. What's next? What's next? So I ended up working in the academic dean's office. Um, and she is probably, probably the one of the most impactful people in my life. She was my mother-in-law eventually. Uh, and I would say she probably made the biggest impact on me from the standpoint of being just a great human, a businesswoman in a time when there weren't a lot of women role models. And she had a very important job. She was smart as a whip, smart as a whip, and just uh, really a great mentor to me. I admired her so much. 
before we go further in your academics, back to your teen years, what was your first job? Oh, gosh. So my first first job would have been delivering papers. Doesn't everybody deliver papers? So yeah. I worked for the Blade, right? And then I had all kinds of them. I worked uh, at Macy's in the credit department. I worked for my dad in his business office and in other business offices, flipped pizzas. I worked at F&M Distributors, stocking shelves. <laughs> so I had a lot of, I mean, I always had at least one or two side hustles going on at all times. Right. Because the only money I was going to get was my money. There was no way my dad and mom could help. So that was it. Got it. Yep. So you finish at Davis, and then you make your way to Siena? So, uh, yeah. So there weren't a lot of—back then, Davis was not accredited the same way like the University of Toledo was. So I right. couldn't transfer those credits anywhere except for private colleges. So Siena Heights was one of the few colleges that would take my credits. And oddly, I never even stepped on their campus. I went to school at Lord's, and then there was a school in Detroit that also hosted us. I Probably Detroit Mercy, Mercy. maybe. Yep, yeah, sure. and they hosted us. So I used to drive up to Southgate, I think it was, um, after work at night, um, you know, all by myself, driving up there uh, for classes. But I never actually, I don't think I've, to this day, been on the campus at You've Siena Heights. I've never been to Siena Heights. We have to take a road so trip. We should take a road trip. I, and I, I hear such great things about how they've expanded over the years and I know quite a few people that have worked there, but I've never actually been there. Okay, yeah. well, we'll go Road trip. We'll introduce a, an alum to yes. some people. That's so, funny. <laughs> but, you know, they were really well before their time. When you think about, you know, trying to get that two plus two that, yeah. you know, became very common later on. But back in the 80s, it wasn't. Uh, and they allowed me to, and I ended up with a business degree in business administration and right. really had a, I had, so I learned labor relations from the labor attorney for Owens, Illinois. I mean, I had instructors that had real life experience that was, you know, really gave me a really full cup when it came to getting an education in business. When you did Davis and then you, when you were at Siena slash Lord slash um, Mercy, <laughs> did you n have a vision where you wanted to go? Or you just, you, I just knew it was up. So you had ambition. I had ambition. I had so much ambition. So I was working for a printing company at the time. And I started off in customer service for them. And I covered for my boss when he was on vacation once. And one of his accounts was Lazy Boy. And I remember driving up there and meeting with Mike Hauser. And when um, my boss got back, uh, he said, you need to put her in sales. Like, she, mm. she's ready. So, And there weren't a lot of women in sales, especially printing industry was very male-dominated. And uh, there was a woman there, um, and she was just getting ready to leave. And they slid me into her, into her spot and really never looked back. I sold a lot of printing. Sold so, a lot of commercial printing. So was that in uh, was that with a marketing firm? So Len Beach Associates, we had our own in-house design, and at okay. the time, all the prep and everything that was done in-house. I I still refer to those words sometimes. Our the designers that work with us at Washington Local will sometimes say, "Yeah, we don't use those words anymore. We don't air we don't airbrush things anymore." <laughs> <laughs> That's what we did in the day. So yeah. Oh my. Yeah. So then after um, you did some marketing work. Mm -hmm. It was your next foray job-wise into the So I actually moved animal? to Cleveland during that time. Okay. And for a printing company there, I had gone through a divorce um, and put some space in there and moved to Cleveland to take a job with a really big-time printing firm and landed a large account and was really very, very successful there and just had an opportunity late in, later in my career there to maybe look for something else. I was, most of my kids were little. They were eight, nine, 10 years old. I was making incredible money. But at 2 a.m., if there was a press check, I was waking them up. Yeah. We were driving into inner city Cleveland. Ouch. They were sleeping on the couch while I was doing the press check with that customer. And How often I, did that happen? Eh, you know, probably once a month. But that's a lot. That's a yeah. lot to disrupt a child's sleep. And my kids were, I mean, they were, they would do anything. They were just, they were so resilient and go-getters. Sure, right. You know, and there was always a big reward for any time that happened. I think probably it happened to me a little more because I was the female. I was the fe I was the only female on staff there, and I think they probably wanted to see if I was worth my salt. Um, I so proved, it was intentional. It was intentional, I think. And I sold more than the owner of the company there. I mean, I just again, I just wanted to go up. I wanted to make sure I had the most. But there was a time when I kind of looked out and I had an opportunity to buy a business with a partner, and we bought that business was a dog kennel of all things. And I thought, well, I'll just keep working. And I didn't realize it'd be like running a full-time farm to have dogs. 400 dogs, right? 400 dogs. That's a lot of dogs and right. cats and bathing. And there was a grooming shop there. And it was all on this beautiful, idyllic little piece of property in Hudson, Ohio. There aren't a lot of pieces of property like that in Hudson. 
Uh, most of it's in the town, but it was it was a lovely place to land. And again, we did really, really well there. And at some point, we're like, we don't really both need to be here. I didn't want to go back and sell printing again. And so I went, I just had this like, I actually went through a health crisis where I was in the hospital and they asked me if I had a will. Mm-hmm. Uh, they w- I was pretty sick. I was really, really sick and they couldn't seem to get the infection under control. And it made me really think about what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I had always wanted to be a teacher. I had volunteered in my son's third grade classroom, incredible teacher there. And so I started hunting for places I could finish a degree quickly. And so in two years, I took 25 hours a semester for two years. So I was taking undergrad, two kids. two kids, I had undergrad and grad at the same time, ran the business, went to school full time, had kids, yeah, that were, again, super, super supportive and resilient. And I remember, like it was yesterday, standing in my classroom on, in Hudson, and I had student taught in fifth grade, and then I got hired in fourth grade. But I remember standing there, and I, just like it was yesterday. I know what I was wearing. I, it was the, one, just one of the happiest moments of my life. I just loved it there. The first, um, the private sector part, was that mm-hmm. 15, 20 years? Of 20 your, years. 20 years. 20 years, yeah. And so it was the illness, someone, when someone it asked you about your will, yeah. you said, okay. I got to reshape what I want to do for the rest of my life. I felt, and the dog kind of was a little bit different, but when I was selling commercial printing, I was, like I said, I was making a great living and I was hitting all those success factors from a business standpoint. But I, I didn't feel like I was contributing. And I think I, you know, always had that call to service. And I volunteered. I was volunteering in my son's classroom. We were, you know, certainly our business was serving people so that they could have happier lives. They could go on vacation, not worry about their dogs, right. all of that. But it wasn't enough. And I think I, you know, you get to that point when you're reevaluating your life sometimes where you're thinking, what, what will my life mean when I leave here? And I just hadn't, I, from the time I was a third grader in Mrs. Denny's classroom, I had wanted to be a teacher. I just didn't have a path there initially. Uh, there weren't a lot of teaching jobs back in 1981. Right. Uh, I didn't have a, I didn't even have a vision for how I would go to a four-year college back then. So I think I had there to take the economic, path. Oh, there are definitely yeah, economic yeah, factors. And, yeah. and the idea even of going to a campus like the University of Toledo, uh, Later, I came and watched this great basketball player there. Um, enjoyed that very much. But the idea of me being on that campus was super intimidating for me. So I was still pretty shy kid inside, pretty unsure of myself still. And, and when you arrived at Hudson, or for the Baldwin-Wallace, did you go on that campus? Did yes, you make I did. It? Smaller, right? Smart. Smaller school again. Right. I think I really was attracted to the smaller school. Uh, they were the ones that would take me. There were other schools that I had to wait a year to get into, and Baldwin-Wallace was like, you can start right now. I did some of my classes at the University of Akron. I did a lot of my undergrad, you know, science and those kinds of classes there, but I did the bulk of it at Baldwin-Wallace. My master's was from there. And you're in classes with typically teachers who are trying to get their master's degree. Right. Like when you introduce yourself in a class, did people kind of just turn their head? When I was the, they, you know, I was the mama bear. I was the older, like a lot of times these kids were 25, you know, and I was 35. And right. I felt like the mama bear. And I had some life experience that I felt like gave me a little bit of a leg up. Uh, but you know what? You're all pretty green when you're in there. So I did all of that in two years. Right. In your your time as an elementary teacher at Hudson and in Perrysburg, what did you cherish the most? What do you hold close to your heart? I think the thing that I remember the most every single time are kids that were like me, that didn't think they could do it and then could do it. Uh, I believe that you should build failure into lessons, you know, like give kids the opportunity to fail so that they know they can recover safely. That's the time to do it is when you're right there. And I think so often we try to rescue our kids. We try to protect them from being wrong or, or doing the wrong thing. And, sometimes, and certainly we want those safeguards around them. But I think it's so important to let them fail. Right. And, of course, recover and cheer them and encourage them. You know, ask them questions that will help them be curious. Uh, I think those moments of curiosity were my favorite. And uh, I had a lot of that in both places. I was really lucky in those years to really teach incredible kids. Mm. 
What brought you from Hudson back to Northwest Ohio? My dad got sick. So my dad and mom were, um, they lived in the point, they lived in the same house their whole lives. And my dad was just really struggling with his health. And my sister lives in Norfolk, Virginia. So she, you know, really couldn't be here. So I moved back to care for my dad. And that's when I got hired by Perrysburg. So that was really fortuitous that uh, I got that opening at the same time. That was an incredible year. They had a overflow in fourth grade and fifth grade at one of the elementaries, and they couldn't quite figure out what to do because it wasn't enough for one class either place. So they decided to create a four or five gifted split. So talk about kids that will give you a run for your money. Uh, they did. And to this day, we stay in contact. It was just it, I don't want to say it was my favorite year teaching, but it was kind of my favorite year it's teaching. Kind of favorite. It was. It was. And you were in the classroom how many years? I was in the classroom eight years. Eight years. Eight. And you did something that is highly rare. Mm -hmm. You went right from a classroom right to a, a significant leadership role in central office. Typically, it goes assistant principal, principal, right. and then there. So you jumped over... All of that. Two steps. Right? Isn't that crazy? I, there must have been so, some crazy superintendent in charge of that. For sure. Right? That's the answer to that. <laughs> it's crazy sure. ideas, right? So when uh, Tom Hostler came to Perrysburg, it was a year after I started, and he had been in Michigan. So he wasn't aware of this thing in Ohio called value-added, which was like all the rage at that time. And I was the district's value-added representative. In that amount of time, I'd weasel up, always going up. So as a teacher, you were the yep. value-added? I raised my hand and said, I'll do it, because our curriculum director didn't want to do it. He was like, right. I want nothing to do with that. He was at the end of his career. He was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. And yep. who could blame him? So I raised my hand, and a t another teacher and I, we went through that training. So when Tom came, I volunteered to go over. She, was, she didn't want to go, and I said, well, he needs to know what it is. Like, they're going to evaluate teachers this way. Like, we got to catch him up to speed. So I went over and met with him. We just had the best discussion that day about all things pedagogy, about choice in reading and how kids should learn and taking, fail or taking risks and failing and all of that. Never thought another thing of it. A year goes by. And he calls me over to his office one day, and there's a group of teachers in the room, really put me on the spot. And it was they were thinking about going to a block schedule. And right. here I am, just like this new teacher in the district, and he's asking me all, all these questions in front of these teachers who are very, very experienced. And I left, not again, not thinking of it, just thinking, well, it was kind of an odd experience, but okay, whatever, you know, he's, he's a great guy. So I, a few weeks later, called me and said, I really would like to try something new. I really would like you to think about taking the curriculum director's job and uh, maybe some technology in there because you've got a good technology background. I was a finalist for Technology Teacher of the Year once in Ohio. So uh, that was a great, that was a great chapter in my Hudson history. So sure enough, that's what happened. I kind of came over and they tapped me on the shoulder and I worked my way through it. The first year I stayed in a teaching contract and they were like, yeah, that doesn't work. We need to move you to the administrative side. So the next year and then spent a lot of years there and enjoyed every bit of it. When you first took that leap, what did you find surprising when you went to the central office? Because obviously you obviously know your right. stuff. Uh, being a teacher, you have it's a kind of a um, a controlled number, mm -hmm. and you were taking additional duties, obviously. But what surprised you when you went to central office? So this is going to go back to my conversation about always wanting to be up, right? So I came from Hudson. This is a district that, in a typical year, has thirty five merit scholars, and Perrysburg, in our area, was you know a really high yeah, achieving district for sure. And I started to it. look at our state data, and that Perrysburg was comparing themselves to local districts that really were not the same caliber as Perrysburg. They weren't looking at their state comparables. Sure. You know, the other, the New Albanese of the world, mm -hmm. right? And that was what surprised me is like, oh, we are not where we should be. And so I wanted us to go up. And so really, I think that was the thing that no one had been looking at the data was really surprising to me. Um, and, and that they had functioned, honestly, they functioned very well without it for the area. It just wasn't, I just felt like they weren't as good as they could be. And right. that's what I always hope for somebody is that, you know, we leave a conversation and we both feel better about it at the end. So that's kind of what I, that was my quest. So someone in a leadership role, whatever it is, but in this case, a curriculum role, part of the job is to challenge people. Always be supportive and caring. And right. all that. But to challenge uh, a team or individuals, that, that, takes some, uh, that takes a backbone. 
So the high school principal is the best. He's the one that's coming right to mind. So Mike Short was the high school principal there. And you know Mike, um, kind of a big grizzly bear kind of guy and barked like a grizzly bear. And I can remember driving on my first day over to the high school. I was going to meet with the math department who was full of grizzly bears and Mike. And Mike and I were kind of button heads a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I, rightfully so. I mean, he's looking at me. I'm a you know, fourth grade, fifth grade teacher, and you're coming in here telling me what to do in my <laughs> high school. And how dare you show me my data and tell me that. But I also had the advantage of Mike's wife, who was at home saying the same thing. Like, you should look at your data. You should, you know. So I, we were like a little bit Susie of Susie was on your team. Susie was definitely team Katie. Yes. And I'm team Susie. So we we kind of butted heads a little bit in the beginning. But then I think we grew, honestly, he grew to be one of my very best friends. Um, we had a real mutual admiration for each other. Um, Tom kind of had to sit us down like a brother and sister and say, um, you two need to get along because you're my, you know, you're two really key players in this. And so we kind of had to put down our swords and stop fighting. And, you know, we were, we were really acting like a brother and sister more than we were colleagues. I have so much respect for where Perrysburg High School started where Perrysburg High School finished under his leadership. And mm. I can't say enough about him. Yeah. And Perrysburg remains one of the highly respected districts mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. the state. And they work hard for it. Yep, I think anybody do. that doesn't realize how hard teachers are working to have that kind of accomplishment is, you're just misguided. They are working so hard for yes, that. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree. When, during your central office, did you start to let yourself to think about the superintendency? Not initially, not for a while, actually. I really loved what I was doing so much. I'm definitely a curriculum geek from the beginning. I, and we were, we were doing a lot of interesting projects. Uh, the Race to the Top grant came during that time, and there were a lot of districts that shied away from that, and I grabbed that ring right away because for us, that was a lot of money. It was only $100,000. But for us, we used it all on professional development for mm. teachers. And that was a time when value added was coming yep. in and all of that. So I, I really didn't think about it. But you know my former boss. And I think he's actually probably got, I don't know, like a plaque somewhere about the number of people that he's mentored into the superintendency. Mm-hmm. So right around 2017-ish, he, Washington Local had opened. And he said, you should go interview. And I was like, eh, that's kind of a mess. I don't think I want to go some there. Challenges. Yeah, there's definitely some challenges there. So I did. I went over and I interviewed and I was in the final two. And uh, it was a great experience. I, I learned a lot and I didn't get the job. And I was okay with that. I, I was a little sad, you know, certainly because I like to go up and win. Yep. But I felt like I really was winning in Perrysburg. I just had, I had a job that I loved. I worked for people that I a person that I really admired and everyone around me was like family. When I went through my cancer battle there, that was like a family that surrounded me and encouraged me every day. I I couldn't even imagine ever leaving there, but I did. But you did. Eventually I did. It opened back up again. And the timing of that was, if I'm getting the framework Mm -hmm. right, it's August of 2019. Mm -hmm. At that time, Washington Local has an incredible, um, Bond issue yeah. connected to an operating levy, and you—it's in November, and you get the job August sixth, right? August nineteenth. August nineteenth. <laughs> it was even later August than 19th. that. Literally, like the teacher's first day was my first day. Yes. And I remember yeah. seeing you on the news shows talking about the levy, like the next week. Uh huh. And so you were hitting the ground. I had a great teacher. Nobody runs a school levy like Tom Hostler runs a school levy. Uh, he's got a lot of experience with it. Yes, Unfortunately, in Perrysburg, you're just on the ballot all the time because they're growing so fast. So I had a great teacher. And I feel, you know, Brad, I feel I am one of those people that really believes that all the experiences in your life pour into whatever's next. Whatever God has next for you, he has prepared your path. And this was one of those cases where I, you know, levy, whatever, knocking door to door, not being afraid to do that, not being afraid to answer the tough questions. That was all preparation. My sales experience was preparation for standing in front of people, in front of reporters, in front of people that weren't pleased. So your sales experience, you're used to people saying no. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of rejection, a lot. Yeah. Interesting. And so um, it passed. It passed. No one believed it, but it passed. Incredible economic times Mm -hmm. right before COVID. Right. Oh. Right before. Right before. T- talk about the impact that that 
those two combined levies are doing for the school district. You know, part of that levy experience, I think, is what helped us get through this time. And that, that may seem funny, but the district really needed something to bring it back together. There was just a lot of hurt there, yeah. a lot of mistrust. And it was such an injection of energy in November to get that. And we we went right into selecting an architect, right into selecting a builder and a builder's rep and all of that work. And so it kept us really energized in the next few months. And, you know, people started to see plans and all of that. There hasn't been a building built in that district in my lifetime, and I am old. And let me tell you that it, those that means those buildings are really creaky. The ones we're replacing are from 1919, 1930, and 1954. I mean, they are old, old buildings, and they they have been loved and cared for. But to see these new buildings rising, they'll open, will be probably get occupancy in early July. It's just going to bring incredible life to Washington Local. I couldn't be more excited. Well, congratulations to you Thank and the you. community and the staff. The community, it's the fact that they would, and we literally, it was very grassroots. The, the teachers kept saying, we've never done it this way before. And I will say that the teachers union really stepped in and said, we think we can help here. We've got an OEA rep that has a lot of experience with levies and you're just getting started and, you know, we're, we're you know, trying to hit the ground running. And th really they did. We came together. Teachers were used to what they call run, you know, run and you just throw the literature at the door and you run as fast as you can, hoping nobody will answer. <laughs> and we taught them to knock yeah. on that door and have a conversation. And if it was too tough a conversation, they handed them my personal phone number and I answered every call. So I think for them, it was a big stretch and they felt they really felt ownership in the mm. passage of that levy as they should have because it was that grassroots effort that knocking on doors we knocked on thousands of doors and i think that was i think that was what tipped us over it was one of the biggest margins they've ever passed a levy by mm. transforming it, oh it will yeah. transform washington local every building will be rebuilt in the next couple of decades you know yeah. uh, over time what a great thing for students for staff the community and just the region so it really is uh, so um, in March of 2020, as you're feeling great about, mm -hmm. you're still getting acclimated, building relationships, COVID hits mm -hmm. in March. And we're on the tail end of it, two plus years later. And I've seen you talk about this before, but the impact of COVID on students and staff, parents. Community. I, we've lost five employees. To COVID. Something that you can't be prepared for as a superintendent is to lose a driver who's been in the district for, you know, 20 plus years, to lose a teacher who's months from retirement. There's, there, there are no words. Uh, and to have it be so unexpected. I felt I felt so often in the last two years like I've been in some weird novel. Like I'm going to wake up and I'm What's gonna realize the name of the novel? I don't know what it is, but it's it's a bad one. Whatever it, it is, don't read it. <laughs> it's a terrible novel. I. It's just an incredible heartache to see staff get hit over and over and over again, um, one blow after another. And and there were families too, parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. It just it touched every piece, every part of our community. And was an incredibly difficult time. How did you handle the the polarization of our country? Mm -hmm. It's it's in every local community. It is. I, you know, I think the if there's any the polarization being with vaccines, uh, mass mandates. You know what's so funny is I look back at my notes from that time, and in the beginning we just prayed for a vaccine gosh, just let there be a vaccine. Let this be over. Let this, you know, and then when it came, it became so polarizing. And it, you know, as a child who at school got in line and they vaccinated me, my parents weren't there. I mean, I just got in line. I, I, that memory for me is in black and white. That's how old I am. Like, I don't even have memories in color. But I remember being in the gym at Kleist Elementary to get a vaccine. I don't know which one it was. Could have been a polio booster or something, but yeah, you know, I, I never even questioned it. And I, you know, my family was military, so they're constantly getting vaccines. I I never I never thought twice about it. But then to see the polarization was it was shocking. It was shocking to me that that would become the issue of all things. I just right. and really we were a community very slow to get vaccinated. Our our community uh and finally we as a district offered an incentive to staff 
And we have over 85% of our staff vaccinated, which, you know, got us back to school, which got us back in front of kids, which was the most important thing to me. I just wanted to be back. I just met with a group of students today. They were debating online, the, the merits of online versus at in-person instruction. And they had to choose, the, they didn't get to choose their side, mm. right? It was chosen for them, like right. a good debate, right. like a good debate. So we were talking about that today and they, they brought up many good points. You know, there, there, are, there were things that we learned that we should never, never, ever forget during this time. And I think that's what Washington Local really did a great job with is we learned a lot. We are a much better district, a much stronger district, not because of COVID, but as a result of what we learned during COVID. And, um, and how you supported each other. Yeah, we supported each other. We had just finished our Portrait of a Panther, which kind of defined what we wanted, what the community wanted. So our community came together right after the levy. We pulled them together for kind of a mini strategic plan. What are the competencies we want to see every graduate graduate with uh, when they leave Whitmer? So what is that Portrait of a Panther? And it was empathy, adaptability, communication, learner's mm. mindset, all the things that we had to put to work during that time. When that news came from the governor, we didn't have a teacher with a laptop, not one. We were networked at school. So when we walked away, they walked away from all of their available technology. But our teachers wrote letters to their kids. We packed individual packets for every kid. Every kid received care and love from that Washington local community. And I think whatever might have been left of the heartache and the dissension and the mistrust, I think was gained again. You know, we, we gained that Washington local family feeling again when we started to take care of each other. Mm. When somebody depends on you, right, that's, that's when you're at your best. Yeah. Uh, my admiration for educators have always been high, but for the last two years. Incredible. I think healthcare and educators, it's worn on them more than, it's worn on everyone across the globe. It certainly But is. from my perspective, the healthcare and education personnel and the students and parents, and it's it's impressive the um, the heroic, just day to day exchanges between teachers and students, it and is. students and teachers. It and, is. Um, thank you for being courageous and helping with that supportive role as the superintendent. Well, it takes a team. It, it takes people that are willing and dedicated. And I will tell you that Washington local team, they're a family, they're community. They're, they've always been that way. I remember in high school, you so admired Whitmer High School because it, you knew there was something special going on there. Right. I was on the wrong side of the river, I always say. Uh, had a great experience, but everybody wanted to be on that Whitmer side of the river. And I, once you're there, you get it. There is just an energy there and a love for community and each other and a sense of pride that is just, you can't go anywhere. I can't go anywhere, anywhere where there's not a Whitmer grad. And somebody doesn't say to me, oh, you know, you're, and it's funny how many people think I'm the Whitmer superintendent, <laughs> not Washington local. I'm the Whitmer superintendent. <laughs> I'm struck by, I know that you're very ambitious and goal oriented, but I'm, I'm sensing you're a big fan of the underdog. Oh, big time. Big time. I am. I, so one of our big moves as a Washington local district, so I wanted to make it pre-pandemic. I noticed that we were sending kids to different buildings, sometimes when they had a different ability than um, other kids. And so their sibling would get on one bus and they would get on another. Hmm. And I wanted to undo that right away and met with a special ed director and we were making plans and then the pandemic hit and I still wanted to do it. <laughs> so he talked me out of it. He said, no, I think we should wait. And so we did. Uh, but this year, our students are all attending their homeschool, with the exception at Shoreland a little bit because we just were not open yet there. So right. we, need, we need to get the new building built first. But it's, it, that's hard work. That's hard work to have students that... Uh, that have different abilities that you might not, you feel like you might not be trained for, you might not have had experience with before, and getting all the supports in place in a time when the job market is just really difficult. So that's been a real push. But the stories that are starting to seep out, uh, just of the great victories that our mm. kids are winning, that are, that are, you know, one of the great victories I think that will come out of the pandemic is that people worked at home. Yep. And I think companies who were in crisis from a staffing standpoint started to look at people with different abilities and said, well, gosh, we're working from home. 
Like I can hire that person because they don't have to worry about, you know, how they get on a bus. How, you know, is that accessible? Are they going to be able to get their wheelchair through the snow? Are they all of those things? So people with disabilities found themselves more gainfully employed than they would have in the past. They had many more opportunities. So that that requires also people of typical abilities, right, to be able to work alongside people that they might not have worked along before. Guess what? Our kids will have done that their whole school careers. They'll be ready for this. This won't be a special class. This will be my class. I had a parent say to me, my child's name's never been on a class list before. That that hurt. That that was because painful. of the special because needs. Because they were in a, yeah, they were in a special yeah. unit that cared for that child's fragile medical needs. But you know what? She's a fifth grader. She should be on a fifth grade class list. And she might not spend her whole day there. She might only spend part of her day. Our goal in the beginning was 15 minutes at the beginning of the day. Last year in our in our union contract, so proud of the Talls Teachers Union who said, we'll add 15 minutes to the day. And we set aside that 15 minutes for social and emotional learning, which has gotten a terrible rap, right. which I do not understand. That 15 minutes is spent in community building every day. So we gather in a circle. We make sure we know everybody's name. We talk about our night before. We talk about people of different cultures and abilities. And we just become a community in those classrooms. And we set that time aside, and it is protected. Nobody else gets it. It doesn't get to go to an assembly. It doesn't become more math or more language arts. It becomes community building. Because going back to that portrait of a panther, the most important thing to the people in Washington Local was not their math achievement or whether or not they, had, they could check a you know, ACT score box. It was what kind of people are coming out of here, what kind of humans graduate from Washington Local. And those are humans that are empathetic and adaptable and are critical thinkers that communicate well. That's what we've set aside time to do. Right. We, uh, I, tar- I mentioned earlier that you followed two superintendents that went out under abrupt terms and you um, attributed the Washington local levy campaign as really a shared experience that kind Very of helped much. heal. Mm-hmm. Sticking, there's some things that probably you had to do also, though, as the leader to try to uh, help reinstill that trust in the community, staff, students. From your perspective, what do you think is the most important thing as far as a leader that wants to have a trustworthy? Um, well, I'm going to take my cue from Brad Rieger at Sylvania School. So one of the things I think you did the best there was how visible you were. And I knew from the very beginning I had to be really visible. They had to see me. And people actually in, in, the, in those early months were like, oh, my gosh, she's everywhere. Like, how do you have a clone? You're just everywhere. And I did. I went to every single event. I had people invite, taking my cue from Tom Hustler. We had coffees in homes where we talked about the levy in a, you know, seven-on-one setting where, you know, you, you trust your neighbors. And so if they'll invite the superintendent into their home, they, right. she must be okay. Uh, football, basketball, concerts, everything I could think of, I was everywhere. And, and I you think, didn't have Granger at that time. And I didn't even have Granger. I, now, I would, and you know what, I would say I was really good at it in the beginning, and it's probably the thing I'm worst at right now. As a matter of fact, the board set that as a goal for me for this year was like, you've got to get back out into buildings. It, you know this. It's so everything pulls you back. Everything pulls you in. The problems are so seismic. They are. Yeah. They are especially now. They're just, you know, it's just like you're on your way out in something you knew. We, at any moment, this could have been canceled, right? At yep. any moment, there's a bus incident. There's something going on. So, um, but it's, I spent some time with Washington students today as they were preparing for their debate. And, you know, every time you're around kids, it just reminds you exactly why you're here. It does I, energize, it's right? It, it does is just energize. the best. They have great energy. What, what's the most rewarding aspect of your job? Anytime I'm around kids. Anytime I'm around kids and they're sharing their stories with me, uh, that's, that's the best. Our basketball team this year uh, did really, really well. And I just learned to know some of those kids, uh, mostly through their coach, but some of them one-on-one as well. Uh, one in particular, just a young man that has thought, fought through really tough adversity this year. His story is incredible. Mm. And the way that he held his chin high and persevered through this year. And those are the stories that give you energy. Those are the things that make you think, okay, you know what? I, I, this, is, this is where I'm meant to be. This is my St. Teresa's prayer, which I pray every day. <laughs> this is my St. Teresa's prayer. This is, I'm exactly where God wants me to be. Downside of the job? Mm. Least, least favorite or in I the think top three? When people will attack 
without any effort to gain understanding. I think that's that's been this last couple of years. Uh, you know, people suing you, people attacking your family online, you know, just bitter, nasty, ugly things that you don't you don't know me. Like I, I reminded someone who attacked me recently. I'm a grandma. Like, stop it. You know, I am a grandma. Did that yeah. no? it, it did, actually. He, he was, I think, you know, they, like, we're all humans here. And as passionate as you are about your side, I want to hear about it because I'm going to learn something. But there's, I talked to the kids about this a little bit today. Like, all of the things they brought up are things we had to consider before we came back to school. Their safety is really important. And it's not your kid's safety. It's 7,000 kids' safety, and 7,000 of those kids and 875 staff members also have a story. You've got a story, and it's an important story, and I want to hear your story. But when you get on the attack because you think your story is the only story, that's, that's the hardest part of the job. Is Because I'll talk to anybody. My phone number, the treasurer said to me when I gave out my personal cell phone number, like, are you out of your mind? Like that number, and, you know, sometimes people would call and be screaming or whatever. He's like, I warned you. Like, yeah, but that, I, that's what I'm there for. I, I would much rather have that conversation than have you file a lawsuit against me for whatever, you know, for your kid doesn't, shouldn't wear a mask or whatever. Let's, let's talk it through because there's a lot that goes into those decisions. It's right. not just about your child. It's about so many others. Right. Yeah. Resilience. To be any type of leadership position, you have to have it. Mm-hmm. Being the superintendent of a large school district like yourself, it's... It's one of the top attributes that you need just to keep going. Mm-hmm. So how do you fortify yourself? Yoga. To be th- to yoga. Yoga. Every morning. I don't miss it. Uh, after cancer, um, I, so I was active all during my cancer battle. I stayed moving. I did Pilates every day. I was very, very active. And then I had surgery and I couldn't move for 60 days. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, you cannot move. And I, I don't know what happened, but my, probably from all that stretching from Pilates, everything shrunk up. And I was really at the point where I was walking with a cane afterwards. Mm. And I, by chance, uh, tried yoga uh, with a yoga teacher up in Monroe, Melissa Whitehead. And uh, the first lesson I thought, and I I was never very flexible to begin with. I'm not that person that can stand on her head or any of that, but I felt better. And within five or six lessons, I was walking without the cane. Mm. And I realized that my body just needs that. What I didn't know at the time was how much I needed the meditation and the quiet. Uh, I live in this beautiful home that overlooks Lake Erie. I'm about to say goodbye to that home, and it's really sad for me. But I practice yoga in front of the lake. I think people would be surprised how still Lake Erie is most mornings. Mm. It is still water. Uh, the sun rises on the lake for me. And so I get this incredible, beautiful place. And I shut the world out for that 45 minutes to an hour. I, it might, you know, unless the phone rings or it's, you know, a serious bus issue or something. Right. Everybody, it's in my calendar. Everybody knows that from 545 to 645, I'm practicing yoga. And that for the most part, I get through that class and I do it every single day. So do you have to make the call for snow delays before? Earlier, yes, yeah. earlier. So that kind of shifts my yoga some mornings, right? <laughs> so sometimes it's 45 minutes. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes we have to shift it. But, you know, you're always making that call by six. So, oh, yes. You mentioned two medical mm-hmm. time kind of um, inflection points. One, when you had the infection and mm-hmm. the person asked the doctor, do you have yep. a will? And then the, the cancer, your cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. How do those two events impact who you are as a leader? Probably, probably a little bit of it's like the sanctity of life. Every moment counts. We just, we changed our vision statement at Washington Local to every student matters, every moment counts. And I love that every moment counts because none of us know, um, if anything, this last two years has taught us that. And I have a realization. I I just had this discussion last week with someone that was just recently diagnosed. And I, Anybody that knows me well knows that I call it the best year of my life, the year that I battled cancer. There aren't a lot of times in your life when people will just stop and tell you how they feel about you. Mm-hmm. They'll, they, they'll go that extra mile to say, I just want you to know what you've meant to me. Or they'll give you a gift or write you a note or send you a card. Now, that's the way we should be all the time. And I try to be that way as much as I right. can. But during that year, I had 
so many. I and mean, I want to tell you a hundred people that poured into my life like that every week that would, I had somebody that sent me flowers every Monday because they knew I was coming off chemo on Friday and that Monday was a rough day for me. So every Monday morning I'd get to work and there'd be flowers on my desk. Mm. I love fresh flowers. I love them. They're, they're my, that's my love language are fresh flowers. I feel incredibly blessed to have lived through that. And I think that every day that I have left, I need to be giving back that same kind of love. It, back to St. Teresa's prayer, pass on the love that you've received. Mm. That's what I try to do every day. And there is a spiritual element to your leadership. Oh, very much so. Very much so. I couldn't, you can't, I, I don't know. Maybe if, somebody does this without it, but I don't know who yeah, they are. Right. right, yeah. So where does the spiritual foundation, where, where was that laid for you? So it, from, the, from the time I was a tiny baby, right? We were the family that was in church every week. The religious upbringing was a little severe and strict, uh, very... Not none at all how I practice now, not right. at all. Uh, but it was, but it laid a foundation. But I will tell you that I rebelled from that. I, I really, I went through a period where I did, I didn't feel like God knew my name, that God knew who I was, that He cared. I mean, I was very, you know, it just felt like a lot of things were going wrong. And I had this, I had this great moment um, at one of the darkest moments in my life. I got called for jury duty. And I'm sitting in the jury room, and this lovely lady sits down next to me, and we strike up a conversation. We find out we go to the same church. Now, I hadn't been going to church, but we go to the same church. Took a couple of snow days. A couple of snow days away. Yeah. So we strike up a conversation, and she had just lost her husband, and we were talking about loss. And I had mentioned that I kind of lost my faith, and she described grace to me in a way that for the first time in my life, in spite of all the 37 years before that, having heard countless sermons on grace. I never saw how it applied to me. And she just had a hour-long conversation, grace, mercy. One of us got called for jury duty and, you know, off we went. It changed my life. It changed everything for me. That was the moment, I will tell you, that my real faith journey began and that I really did from then on uh, just look up anytime. How'd she describe grace? Um, you know, she talked about that it was God, I mean, she just really said, this is God's individual gift to you. He does know your name. He doesn't care about the three, you know, the 37 years before this. Grace is that thing that you get every morning and that you, you know, you can put your head on your pillow at night knowing that the last word he whispers is your name mm. and that the rest of it he'll forgive you for. I, I think part of it was, you know, we all do these things in our lives, divorces, um, you know, parenting mishaps, whatever it is, right? And you don't feel like, oh, you know, just I would beat myself up. I was that first child, so I was a perfectionist. And I, I had failed multiple times. I feel like the one thing I'm probably really good at is getting back up, dusting myself off and mm -hmm. going again. That's probably one of the strengths of the superintendency, yeah. right? We do a lot of this, too. a lot of that dusting off. Uh, but she, I just, for the first time, I thought, oh, it's for me. It is for me. And why was I in this jury room on this day with this stranger? There were a hundred jurors in that room. She could have sat anywhere. There were plenty of open seats. And I actually, when she sat down, thought, well, that's close. You know, I mean, because there were open seats all over the place. But it was, she said, she goes, I just felt really drawn to you. And she just knew she had a message to share with me that day. Thank goodness she shared it. And it was life-changing. It really was. Mm. Yeah. You um, have had a lot of impactful people that have mm. entered your life. What's the best advice that you've ever received? You know, I, this is a little trite, but uh, I believe it with all of my heart that if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I know it's in my office. It, I had, you know, I've got the sign in my office. I really believe that. I work really hard. I cry at the end of the day sometimes. Uh, but I really love, love, love what I do. And I know I, again, I go back to, I know I'm right where God wants me. And on the days where it feels really hard, I know that I'll have the strength to get through because that's where he wants me. And so I have to say, okay, it's, it's on you because I feel like I can't, I can't get through this day. And, you know, this situation is really hard and, you know, these people are in pain and I don't know how to help them, but I know you're there. So I'm going to, I'm going to hang with that. And I, I just trust that. I trust that with all of my heart. So I'm struck by your purpose. Mm -hmm. Your purpose-filled, Katie, for sure. Yeah. The Purpose-Filled Life was actually the book that I read right after she talked to me about grace. And it talked about your darkest moment, your whatever that is for you. 
God forgives that. Like he, he's so about your future and not about your past. Mm. Like stop, stop trying to let that define you. I think for so many people that I've come across that just keep dredging up that past or wearing it like a backpack, it's so freeing to be able to say, you know what? Yeah, I know you might think I'm a horrible person for whatever happened in my life, but I, I've moved on. Like I've moved on. I have, I have a purpose and I'm not going to let that baggage weigh me down. Right. When you're in front of other kids, uh, whatever group that is, a team, NHS, um, the band group, mm-hmm. um, what's what's typically a theme that you use to gravitate that you really want to impart on them? You... Be a good human. Like, just be a good human to each other. Be kind to each other. Love each other. Our kids are so good at that. They show so much love to each other, and they support each other. I think about our football crowds, our basketball crowds, and the way those kids come together, you know, student section of the year. Uh, they come together that way because of the sense of community that their parents, their grandparents, their families, our staff. Hmm. In the absence of families, our staff steps in and shows them the way. So that's always my message is just be a good human. Be a great human. Yeah. Good for us adults, too. Yes, right? yes, yes. It's pretty much everything that kids should know, adults should already yeah. know, but they forget. Yeah. What about a historical figure, leader that you uh, admire? You know, I, don't, I, I thought about that question a little bit. I, there's many. You know, I'm a history student, and I, I love all of that. But I think it's the people, you know, I have grandfathers that were incredible. My grandpa Veach, uh, was a police officer and a mayor. And I mean, just a life of service, such a life of service. Uh, and he was really great. I think the person I admire the most is my husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just taught me a lot about dusting yourself off, getting back up, persevering, uh, failure, and that it doesn't define you, that your next success is there. He's my biggest cheerleader. Uh, he's the one that, you know, when I've really had a bad day, he's also the one that can talk to me straight, right? Everybody in their life keeping needs it real. someone that can keep it real with you. You need people in your life that will not lie to you. Where did you two meet? Um, we actually met in the printing industry back in Cleveland. So we met there and only for a brief time. So we met, um, he was the sales manager at this uh, printing company that I was there. And then he left and went back to New York and lived his life there. And years later, after 9-11, uh, we, I just connected to make sure he was okay. I was a teacher at that point and wanted to go back. And I was going to New York because I had won an award and was going to New York to accept this award. And I said, you know, I'd really like to, to connect and have dinner. And I want to tell you, we fell in love at that dinner. It was the weirdest thing. I look back now and I think it was like magic. It was almost, I mean, we just were both at points in our life when it could happen. He's such an encourager. Uh, He's a, he's a Toastmaster. He's, he's somebody that mentors other people. I just admire him so much. I really do. He's a great guy. I'm really happy for you that you have someone, because I know how demanding your job is, mm-hmm. and to have someone that can pick you up, keep it real, yeah. distract you, and mm-hmm. just remind you of other big things yeah. that are important. Oh, he keeps it real. He keeps it real. <laughs> he keeps it real. He does. Um, I'm happy for you. Of course, happy yeah. for him, too. Uh, what about a book that had an impact on you. You know, a couple summers ago, a few summers ago now, uh, I was still at Perrysburg. I read a series of books in a row. I've always got two going, usually a fiction yeah. and nonfiction, right? So I read um, Steve Quinone's book on uh, the opioid crisis. Mm. And I was also reading a Jody Bacalt book at the same time that was talking about um, bias, unconscious bias. And those two books together, again, every moment prepares you for what's coming, right? And those two books together really kind of shook me to my core to make me really look at my my core values my my beliefs and was I living my beliefs just in my heart or in the superintendency was I using my mouth to also make sure that everyone around me knew that that's how I felt right. and that that that's how we were going to conduct business every right. day and I think that that was kind of a one-two punch for me it's just kind of a weird combination of books that I happened to read at the same time so probably those Probably those two, but many, many, many books. I'm You're always a reader. Reading something. You're I'm a reader. reader. I'm a reader. Yes. If you look back, and you've mentioned some pretty um, poignant times in your life, is there a one incident or a defining moment that put your life on a certain trajectory or a moment, a person, a situation that sticks out? 
the way that I became superintendent at Washington Local, there's not, there's dozens of those yes. moments, but this is a lot kind of defining of, moments. Yeah. So I was the assistant superintendent at Perrysburg at that time, and that had happened right after I hadn't gotten the job at Washington Local, and those three years prepared me. I just got to do things in that role that I hadn't done as a director of teaching. Right. I just a lot of student discipline. I learned restorative justice in that role. Uh, just so much that I learned during that time. But I was I was out checking on a construction project because our director of operations had just retired, so I had taken on that hat. Um, little did I know. Why not? You raise yeah, your why hand. Not? I'll yeah. do it. I'll do it. Yeah, heck yes. It was just a few months, right? So I was checking on a construction project. And so the night before, I had applied for a job in Michigan as superintendent. My superintendent was tapping on my shoulder saying, it's time. You need to go. It's time. You need to go. So I had applied for a job, and I was feeling pretty good about that job. Would have been a good great job. Even the town sounded so idyllic. <laughs> so I was all set. Kind of my mind was there. Going to have to change the colors in my wardrobe, you know, those yeah. kinds of things. And I had to make a detour because of this construction project. I had to walk around it and I ran right into a Washington local board member. And I said, oh man, I'm so sorry. Because the night before yeah. they'd had their resignation. I said, I just, I feel bad because I, you know, I, my heart really bled for, I grew up in, I grew up in Toledo. I just wanted them to do well. And I felt like they'd been through so much. Yeah. And then to have to go through it again, I just felt really badly. And he said, are you ready? And I said, well, I was ready three years ago, which actually wasn't true. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time. Because <laughs> you're three years as assistant. Oh my gosh. We're so preparatory for this. So preparatory. It's funny, the HR director will say something to me right now, and I'll say, nope, done that. Okay, did it Did it in those three years. That, that three years, we packed a lot. Tom and I packed a lot into those yeah. three years. Lots of. I remember meeting with you and saying, what does an assistant superintendent do? Everything the superintendent doesn't want to do. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> I say that to my assistant superintendent all the time. So, but that moment, I mean, I just, it was, and so honestly, that was like a, maybe a Tuesday Oh, well, probably a Wednesday because they had board meetings on Wednesday. And by Friday, I was, by Sunday, I was sitting in front of their board. And, I, you know, it was one of those situations where I didn't have anything to lose. I loved my job. Right. I didn't care if I retired in Perrysburg. I loved it so much and really couldn't imagine. It's kind of like before you have your second child, can't imagine that you could ever love a child as much as your first child, right? And I thought, I'm okay if I don't get it. And so I, I was just myself. I wasn't nervous in front of the board. When I met on that Sunday night in the back room, you know, I was just like, this is what it is. You've got a levy on the ballot. You're not going to pass it with an interim. You know, she's fantastic, but that's going to be really hard to do because now you've got, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm the person that can pass that levy for you. I said, but you do what you want. And that's kind of, that's kind of the way I left it. I was okay. I was as confident as I've ever been. And I knew, again, I just knew God was in control and that if it was the right thing, it would happen. And if not, I was probably moving to Michigan or, you know, going, yeah, going to change yeah, my license. Yeah. So either way you were changing. Either way, I was going to change the spareware. Gratefully at Washington Local, I was able to keep all the gold. So now I just have to, I had to get the black out of my wardrobe and change to Navy. So I wear amazing blue every day. Perfect. Yep. Last two questions, Katie. What uh, inspires you mm. to be the best? Katie, what moves you? You know, I, I would tell you kids, uh, and I would say it's our five kids. Mike and I are, whoops, somebody's sleeping. That's all right. <laughs> Wake up, girl. It's Granger. It's Granger. Uh, our five kids and their spouses are just amazing. They inspire me every day. They all have very different jobs. I have a special ed teacher in there, a first grade teacher, an IT person, uh, the um, our oldest is the director of creative services for a huge financial firm in New York City, and uh, I and my son is a banker. Uh, they're so very different, and they're all givers. They're all people that either give to their community or give through their jobs. Um, they are good humans. Mm. I'm inspired by them. I'm inspired by my grandkids. I have three really great grandkids. I have a six year old grandson, Landon, who is just a voracious learner and an 18-month-old granddaughter and a seven-month-old granddaughter. And they, you see, people said this to me for years and I didn't believe them, but you see the world differently through your grandchildren's eyes than you did your own children. There's something really, really special about being a grandparent. There's just, there's no job quite like it. It's my favorite. Oh my goodness. And then last one, how do you want to be remembered, Katie? I hope that people will know that I loved them 
that I loved the time I spent with them, that they poured into my soul in some way, no matter what the situation was, that I learned something from them. Um, sometimes you learn what not to be when you have an interaction, right? But I hope people know that I really believe every moment counts uh, and that I love this time that I've been given. Uh, you know, I, every day is a gift. And that's, again, kind of one of those trite statements. But for me, it really is. Um, being a, you know, stage three cancer survivor, I, I really can say fully that I know it's a gift. And I hope that people will, when they leave whatever interaction we've had, think, well, that was time well spent. That was good. That was worth my time. Hmm. Well, this has been a gift, Katie. This has been worth my time and everyone who listens to this. So thank you for being so genuine, passionate, and just human. Oh, thanks. This has been a... It's been great. It's been a and g- I agree with Chris Peterson. We need to interview you next. Mm. And Chris is definitely the one to do it. Uh, get yourself a podcast. Then I'll come out of your <laughs> Careful podcast. what you wish for. <laughs> this has been wonderful. Thank you, Katie. No, thank you, Brad. It's been great. Thank you.